Father, we offer all that we are to you. We especially offer our time to you this morning as an act of worship. May it bless you. Amen. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on these people a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. These people will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. These are the words of the prophet Isaiah found in chapter 61, but they are also the words of my heart today. Through this sermon, I want to bring encouragement and good news to those of us who are brokenhearted. A new year is two days away. Really, it is. It's coming. I'm sure that many of you anticipate good things for yourself in 2013. But because I know this congregation well, I know that some of us dread or fear it. Because things are far from good now, and better things are beyond our control. It might be dissatisfaction with work, a strained marriage, the loss of a loved one, Financial crisis, depression, anxiety, and addiction, chronic pain, something, something could be wringing your heart dry. Whatever your troubles, I have one very important question for you. What is this doing to your relationship with God? Many of us have felt far from God, some of us for a long time, and that is the secret that weighs us down. We're in great pain, or we feel dead inside. We can identify with this person that Isaiah talks about who wears a crown of ashes. We wonder how we will get through another year like 2012. Now, all of us, whether past or present, have experienced pain. A bomb may have dropped into your life 10 years or 10 months or 10 days ago. And I'm wondering if you've dealt with that pain yet. Have you explored how the shrapnel from that bomb may have damaged your relationship with God? It's likely that circumstances in your life have affected how you see God. If I know anything and I don't know much, it's that having a whole and healthy relationship with God is essential for health in all other areas of life. I want 2013. 2013 to be a year of healing for all of us healing in many ways but mostly healing in our relationship with god i want all of us to be people who wear crowns of beauty who are anointed with the oil of joy and wrapped in garments of praise doesn't that sound fantastic we need to pause though If we're going to have a year like that in 2013, we need to pause and take a close look at our lives 
and see how circumstances may have damaged or distorted our image of God. To do this, I want us to take a look at this painting. Now, the first service and I had a good chuckle because the title wasn't supposed to be up there and it was going to be a little trivia to see if you knew what this painting was. So I said, who knows what this is called? This whole section goes, the night watch. So the joke was on me. This is called The Night Watch. This is Rembrandt's most famous painting, and it was originally painted in 1642. It's a scene of a Dutch militia who's gathered at the center of town, surrounded by their supporters. I've seen this painting in person in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and it is gigantic. It's almost 20 by 12, which is larger than most of the classrooms in this church. Now, what few people know about the Night Watch is that it was covered with a dark varnish sometime after Rembrandt's death. This was very customary. But when it was chemically cleaned in 1940, the varnish came away, and they discovered that the Night Watch was actually a day scene. (laughs) Suddenly, they realized that the popular title for this painting was completely wrong. Another little-known fact. The night watch was painted for a specific location to fit an entire wall. But when they moved the painting years later, it had to be trimmed down on all four sides to fit its new location. And the trimming cut off two characters from the left side of the painting. Now, we know that for hundreds of years, when people viewed the night watch, they did not see what Rembrandt created. I believe that the same thing happens with our image of God. Our painful experiences are like a dark varnish that shades and distorts the way God meant for us to see him. How many of you have witnessed or experienced something so terrible that your concept of God no longer fits in with your experience of the world? Maybe the school shooting in Connecticut or another world disaster or even something closer to home. Maybe that has you wondering how God can really be good. And when something bad happens, how many of us, how many of us subsequently trim down our image of God so that he can fit into our new understanding of reality? But do we realize that when we do this trimming, we cut off part of the story that God originally revealed to us? Rather than acknowledging and holding on to this tension between who God is, and who the world portrays God to be, we allow circumstances to distort the truth of God's character. Today I'm going to ask you to be courageous. I'm going to ask you to be courageous and peer into the wreckage of your life, past or present. It may be painful, but it's important. If we do the difficult work of digging through the mess of our lives and getting down to the points of pain, then we can find healing. This is what this whole service is about. Healing our images of God so that we can have healthy, thriving relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Now, digging into your past or into your pain may be too uncomfortable or scary to jump into. I get that. That's why today you will hear stories and testimonies from real lives, including my own. Relax. Listen, we'll go first. We will show you that healing is possible. The first story I want to offer you is very raw. It's recorded in a letter 
It's a confession written to God, but put in a letter from one believer to another. This is what it says. Lord, my God, who am I that you should forsake me? The child of your love and now become as the most hated one. The one you have thrown away as unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. No one on whom I can cling. No, no one. Alone. The darkness is so dark and I am alone. Unwanted, forsaken. The loneliness of the heart that wants love is unbearable. Where is my faith? When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and damage my very soul. Love, the word, it brings nothing. I am told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. These are the words of one of the 20th century's most revered disciples. A disciple who led thousands of Christians to serve the poorest of the poor. These are words from the soul of a person who opened safe homes and ministries for abandoned children, the mentally ill, the dying, the physically disabled, no matter their religion or social standing. These are the words of Mother Teresa. I've been reading a biography called Come Be My Light, which has for the first time published Mother Teresa's private correspondence and revealed the distortion in her image of God. Throughout her ministry, Mother Teresa was known for her balanced life, her cheerfulness, and her ever-present smile. But few people know that for almost 20 years during her service in India, she experienced what she called utter spiritual darkness. Her interior life was a constant tension between spiritual deadness and her commitment and calling to be, get this, the apostle of joy. She felt so disconnected from God. There was such silence from God over years of her life that privately Mother Teresa called God absent one. It's hard to imagine a disciple as faithful as Mother Teresa, feeling abandoned by God. It's amazing to me that she continued to serve God in the darkness for three years, let alone 20. How many of you know people who've experienced something so difficult that they blame God? Or they walked away from God or Christianity? Or they rejected belief in a God altogether? I have a friend who I'll call Steve. One day three years ago, Steve casually mentioned to his wife, who's one of my closest friends, that he was no longer a Christian. He no longer believed that the resurrection of Jesus was plausible. He stopped going to church. He started looking into other religions, reading a wide variety of spiritual literature, and exploring various cults. Earlier this year, Steve called me out of the blue and wanted to talk to me about the Mason's interpretation of the Gospel of Matthew. My friend has not confessed to anyone what has caused him to reject Christ. I don't even know if he could articulate it himself. But rejecting a worldview 
a faith that you've embraced your entire life, I don't believe that happens overnight. Nor do I believe it's a purely intellectual choice. I suspect that there is some unacknowledged and unresolved pain in my friend's soul which has caused him to reject the good news of Jesus Christ. Something happened to Steve, whether it was in a moment or across years of his life. And something caused so much damage that he can no longer imagine a God who would, out of love, send his son into the world to die for their sins. So my friend Steve is shopping for a new understanding of God. I don't know the cause of his spiritual wanderings, but whatever it is, Steve's image of God has changed drastically. It's distorted. He's not the only one. Before I share my testimony, I want to claim the words on our sign along the street, no perfect people allowed. We on staff often say, no perfect pastors allowed. In the past six years, I've experienced significant pain in circumstances both professional and personal. The past three years have been harrowing. What caused this pain is best kept in the confidence of my counselor and my mentors. So I'll ask you to suspend your curiosity. Let me simply say that pain has varnished my life from sunshine to mud. Pain has distorted my image of God. To illustrate, I'd like to share a story with you from my days as a hospital chaplain. It's a very difficult story to tell, and it's a difficult story to hear. But this event helped me understand the brokenness within me. So bear with me as I tell the story. One day I was working as the chaplain on call, which meant that in 700-bed hospital and an emergency department, I was the one who got called to any crisis. I was paged to the emergency department and told that I would be supporting a young single mother whose son they were desperately working to resuscitate. This is what happened. This young mother had just moved to the valley. She and her son had moved in with her father and grandfather. They had just pulled in two days before. They were looking forward to building a new life here in Phoenix. She was going to go back to school. They were in the pool together. Mom was floating on a raft. Her son was securely buckled into his life jacket. And they were having a fantastic time. Later, Grandpa came out and said, Does anyone need anything? And the little boy said, I want to go inside and get something to eat. So they unbuckled his life jacket, and Mom pushed off because her son was now safely in the hands of her grandfather. She heard the door shut, and she just floated around for a few minutes. And, you know, later she thought, you know, he's my responsibility. I don't want to move in and think that they have to take care of him. So she went inside to check on her son to see if he needed anything. When she got inside, she couldn't find him. Her grandfather said, I, don't, I haven't seen him. So fearing the worst, she runs back outside to the pool and looks in and doesn't see anything. But she told me that their pool pump had been broken and the water was pretty murky. But she didn't see anything. She looked and then she thought, you know, four-year-old boy, he's very adventurous, always getting into trouble. Maybe he ran out the back gate to the playground. So she runs out the back gate. She looks all over the playground. She's calling his name. And he's not there. So she runs back into the backyard. And she looks in the pool and she sees his foot. 
She dove in the pool. She pulled her son out. And she worked frantically while her father called the paramedics to try to resuscitate him. We don't know how long he was underwater. But that precious four-year-old boy could not be resuscitated. He died that day. And I laid in the private family waiting room with this young mother who was a decade younger than me as she wept. She didn't know that he was dead. But she was praying desperately for a miracle that he would survive. But then part of her knew that he was gone. Unfortunately, I worked many drowning deaths of children as a hospital chaplain. When tragedy is part of your regular work, it sounds strange, but you just learn to cope and you learn to move on to the next incident. And in fact, I got a page and had to go work another child death that day, back to back. You just learn how to do that. But this drowning knocked me down. I didn't see a single patient the next day. I couldn't bring myself to do it because I couldn't stop crying. I fought tears and I had to ask myself why this particular drowning was affecting me so personally, so profoundly. I saw tragedy every day. I worked with death every day. But this one, this one was personal. Through prayer and reflection, I realized that this event was my image of God. I identified with that little boy in the pool. My circumstances made me feel like I was a child without a life jacket, drowning in the murky waters of my life. Oh, I knew that God was with me, like that mother was with her son in the pool. And I knew that God loved me as much as that weeping mother loved her child. But I felt like God had taken his eyes off me, and I was slipping under the water unnoticed. Inside, my soul was crying out, Don't let me drown! Six years of painful experiences and events had changed the way that I related to God. My image of God morphed from a loving parent to a neglectful parent who overlooked me. I had known what it was to bask in the love of my heavenly Father, but I could no longer feel his warmth on my face. My faith was in survival mode for a long time. I did everything I could to tread water. I asked why over and over again. Eventually, I realized that constantly asking why did nothing but keep me stuck in self-pity, and I hate wallowing. Needing something constructive, I changed my prayer life. Prayer became an intentional time of silence, where I simply acknowledged that I was entering into the presence of God. I asked only that God would bring me consolation as I waited for circumstances beyond my control to change. And I'm trying to patiently and gently walk through the time it takes for my wounds to heal. I am walking a healing path. I took my first steps on that healing path when I acknowledged the pain I felt and when I realized how that pain had distorted my image of God. Another step in my healing has been confronting myself. Sounds strange. But I literally have looked in the mirror and asked myself, Corey, 
Is God negligent? Is that the truth of God's character? Those questions drilled down into a lot of others. Like, how can you know who God is? Is there a difference between who I experience God to be and who God is? Do my feelings, experiences, or circumstances determine God's character? What is true about God? Who determines truth? Now, that's far more philosophical than I usually get. But I wanted healing and restoration so badly that I was willing to dig through the foulest, deepest manure pit that was my pain. I've discovered that healing comes at the most unexpected times. Another step on my healing path was when I heard my friend Alyssa Brooks Dowdy preach to a group of single at-risk moms that we hosted here at the church for Mother's Day. Alyssa told these women, who most of them didn't know Jesus, the story from Genesis 16. It's Hagar's story. Part of it is recorded in your sermon notes. Hagar, if you remember, was the servant of Sarai and Abram. And she was given to Abram so that she could conceive a baby for this childless couple. When she becomes pregnant, as you can imagine, jealousy rages between the two women and harsh mistreatment causes Hagar to abandon all security and run away. Pregnant and alone in an unfamiliar desert with no hope for a future, Hagar probably thought all was lost. I wonder what that did to her image of God. But all was not lost. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring. He told her good news, that God would give her so many descendants, they would be innumerable. Gratified by this word from the Lord, Hagar rejoices and assigns a new name to God. el Roi Ra'ah, which means the God who sees me. Hearing this story reminded me of the character of the God to whom I'd committed my life. The redemption in Hagar's story exposed this dark and distorting varnish that my painful experiences had painted over God's image. God is not floating on a raft while I drown. His character is such that when I feel hopeless and alone, staring death in the face, he will come find me. Hearing truth from Hagar's story that God is the God who sees me was an experience of restoration and great hope in my relationship with God. My experience is not unique. Distortions of God's image and the need for healing in our relationship with God are actually quite common. So common, in fact, that I've become convinced that it's an inevitable part of discipleship. This little kingdom that we live in, it's a mess. It's difficult to resist temptation when it's in every store, on every channel, in every direction we go. It's difficult to hold on to hope when there is so much violence and pain and brokenness. Troubles will trip us up here and now. That's why Jesus spent so much time before he was arrested teaching his disciples and warning them about how the trials were coming. Following Christ in this troubled little kingdom means most of us will sustain some damage to our image of God. But healing is possible. 
To illustrate this for you, I've invited two of our friends, Jeff and Linda, to come up on stage and share their testimonies with you. short. (laughs) My name is Linda Pears. I've been at this church now for about a year. I came up from Casa Grande. My life was a good one. Seven years ago, uh, I and my husband of 32 years and my 91-year-old mother, we lived together. We had a loving Christian home. I had a good life. My husband and I worked together at a business. Uh, We worked six days a week, and on the seventh day, we were on call. So we slowly let the church and God kind of slide away. We didn't have time. Uh, There were other things we wanted to do that needed to be done. Seven years ago, we found out my husband had colorectal cancer. They'd operated on him and removed two tumors said he was fine, no further treatment needed, that he was cancer-free. A year later, he couldn't breathe. So we tried, went and did a bunch of tests and everything, and they said, oh, there was a thickening on his uh, lungs. They didn't know what it was. We'll do a biopsy. He went in for a biopsy on the 7th of January. It was supposed to just be overnight at the most. When they got in there, they came out and they told me he's full of cancer. His lungs are attached to his chest wall. There's not much we can do. He will just have to wait. So at that time, this overnight cancer or overnight operation turned into 14 days in the hospital. The 27th of uh, January, we got to take him home. When we got home, his oncologist wanted him to come in two days later. We'll start a really strong chemotherapy. It's experimental, but we're going to get this. At the time, he was having trouble because he couldn't seem to eat or drink. Uh, he'd choke every time he did. Well, on the 29th, he went in and he had his chemotherapy and he came home. And that night, in the middle of the night, he had to go to the bathroom, and he couldn't. I had to carry him in there. He couldn't get in there. When I took him back to the bedroom, he said, call 911. I'm not going to make it. So we called 911, went to the hospital. He died the 1st of February, two days later. At that time, I couldn't understand it. I was so angry at God. Here's my husband, who is a good man. Why are you taking him and you let these pedophiles and these wife beaters and these criminals live? And you're taking a good man. But I kept stumbling along. I had to keep working. I had to pay off a bunch of doctor bills. And my mother and I were still together, still working, uh, living together. I was enjoying her company. Then all of a sudden, she started into deep dementia and into Alzheimer's, and she no longer knew me. She gave me uh, 
persona of her mother, finally. I don't know if I looked like her. My grandmother died long before I was born. But I was her mom. And she just kept going deeper and deeper and fading away on me. And then she went into a coma. Six days later, I lost her. For the first time in the 65 years, I was alone, completely alone. I had never lived alone. I have children, but they had their own families, and they were doing their own grieving. I was so angry at God, I thought he was a vengeful, mean man, that he had done this and turned his back on us. What was he punishing us for? And I turned away from him completely. My days were very, very dark, very long, and I'd sit a long time at home after work and just cry. Four years, I stumbled in this darkness. No joy in the family, no joy in my heart. I just stumbled. And then, when I'd be sitting alone at night, I'd think there was someone in the room with me. And I'd think I heard someone talking to me. And I'd look around, and there was no one there. And then it got so I felt warmth. I felt like somebody was putting their arms around me, that somebody was there for me. At that time, I met Jim Escobar, and he told me, we're having a visitation at the church. Come to my church. That was 50 miles away from where I lived. So I drove the 50 miles to Tempe, and I went to his church. I did that for a year. I drove 50 miles there and 50 miles home every Sunday, and I listened to the word of the Lord. And it slowly worked its way in. It slowly woke me up to the Lord is there. He is there for me. And I went forward when they called us forward, and I said, please pray for me. I've lost the Lord. Please pray for me. Help me. A month later, I went forward and asked to be baptized, that I wanted to be born again and accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. We found this church and the warm family here gives me the love of God, and, and I can keep going and know Jesus Christ is with me every day. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> Uh, so my name is Jeff Brooks Dowdy. Uh, I've been to this church for a little over three years now. Uh, moved over from uh, North Phoenix, originally from California. Um, been really blessed to be part of this church. Uh, my story starts when I was uh, about 15. Um, prior to that, my parents uh, didn't really go to church. I didn't really talk about God, religion, any of that stuff, so I didn't really have any exposure to it. Didn't really know, you know, didn't really think about God, um, think about spirituality, anything really. Um, but my best friend uh, in high school, I uh, was a churchgoer. You know, I've been a Christian his whole life, and I was kind of raised in the church. Uh, started me inviting me to, to his youth group. And, uh, you know, I finally went one day after, you know, enough nagging. Um, and uh, basically I went, you know, I felt really awkward, really different there. I felt uh, very out of place, like I didn't belong. Um, but I saw something in the people at the youth group that, they, you know, the way they smiled, the way they laughed, the way they had fun, the way they built friendships. And it was something that I really wanted, you know, something that I, I kind of clung to. Um, so I kept going, uh, you know, fast forward, you know, about two years later, um, I ended up going to a play called, uh, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Um, does anyone remember that play back in the nineties? Um, it's pretty controversial, uh, at the time, like, uh, it's pretty based on, uh, kind of fear. 
Um, for those who don't know, it's a bunch of small skits uh, about people that basically die, and uh, they either go to heaven or hell, and there's angels and demons, and the demons drag off the people that go to hell, and the angels, you know, send off whoever's going to heaven. And there's, uh, you know, parents that get divided from their children, and there's friends that get divided, and it's, it's very emotional. Um, so I gave my life to Christ then, uh, mostly out of sheer terror, and... Uh, <laughs> I was basically just scared to death. I thought I was just one step away from just falling off a cliff and, you know, going to hell. So I, uh, you know, gave my life to Christ, um, started going to church regularly, you know, reading the Bible, uh, getting really involved. I got really involved with the youth group. And uh, that's when I met Laura, who was our youth pastor. And uh, she pretty much was one of the most influential people in my life. And uh, you know those people that, like, you meet for, like, two minutes and you just want to get to know them really well and you just want to be really close friends with them? Uh, she was one of those people. And uh, just the way she loved the, children, loved the kids in the youth group and the way she loved everyone um, with abandon. And she just no judgment. And uh, she just really got to know each kid on an individual level and just really loved them. And uh, that was really impactful for me because that was the first time I'd really seen that um, in someone. Um, so fast forward, I graduate from high school. Um, get, I move out of town. Uh, moving with some friends, um, you know, two hours away from where I lived, and I uh, basically dropped God, uh, stopped reading the Bible, stopped going to church, and uh, the strange thing is I didn't really, like, consciously do it. I didn't, uh, you know, say, okay, you know, I'm done with God, let's be done. I, I kind of created, you know, life circumstances that basically disallowed God from coming into my life. Um, you know, I started going to parties, started drinking, um, you know, getting in the wrong crowd, um, got involved in some really um, bad relationships, um, and eventually just really hit bottom. Uh, when one of those relationships ended, um, I was just crushed and devastated because I clung to that relationship so badly because um, I felt needed and I felt part, you know, like I was, I belonged in that relationship even though it was, you know, super unhealthy. Um, so after that, um, through a lot of depression, um, I ended up so sleeping like 13 hours a day and uh, just was not, my life was not going anywhere and I just felt worthless. Um, and then I just decided to give up on God. I said, you know, God, you don't exist. Um, I'm done. And uh, I talked to Alyssa, who's actually now my wife, ironically enough. Um, and we'd been friends, you know, through high school and, and, and pretty much my whole life, um, high school on. And uh, she really challenged me. She kind of said, you know, well, so you don't believe in God. What does that mean? What does that look like? And uh, she had me try to articulate why I don't believe in God, and I really couldn't. Um, it was all emotional. It was all feelings, and I just felt like I was just angry at God. And uh, so I, I kind of took up that challenge, and I just I started reading a lot of books. I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, a lot of Francis Schaeffer. Um, I read Case for Christ like five times. And uh, really just started, you know, digging into the Bible and digging into, you know, who is God? You know, does he really exist? And uh, that's where I kind of built like an intellectual knowledge of God. I, I could, you know, kind of understand who God was. I could, you know, argue for the, the case of God and the existence of God. Um, but he wasn't really, you know, in my heart. You know, I didn't really know him on a personal level. And uh, it's been over the next 10 years that God has just slowly um, become a friend and a father to me, um, and just through prayer. And I've had a lot of experiences. I've had friends commit suicide. I've seen churches divide. I've seen friends turn on each other. Um, but through that now, I can kind of grieve through that stuff with a God um, who is a friend and a father instead of doing that by myself. Um, so that's my story. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff and Linda. By now we've heard many stories of how pain, brokenness, and circumstances distort the image of God. But like Jeff and Linda have shared, healing is possible. 
Another healing point came for me when I wrestled with this constant tension in my spiritual life. It felt like I was holding two huge magnets. One was my experiences and my feelings on one side, and then the other was what I knew about God in the Bible. I wanted so desperately to reconcile these things, to pull them together so that my soul could have relief. But they, just like huge magnets do, kept pushing against each other. I grappled with the question, is God negligent because that's my experience of him, or is the truth of his character determined outside of my experience? Simply put, it came down to this. Who is the artist of God's image? My foolishness, and there's no shame in being a fool, my foolishness in all of this was in thinking that I hold the paintbrush. I don't determine who God is. Neither do you. God does. God is the artist. God's word and God's actions are the paint on his brush, creating this beautiful and complex image of himself. Hope Covenant is part of the Evangelical Covenant. It's a fellowship of churches united by a love for Jesus Christ. We have what we call affirmations. There are six of them. And they're fundamental beliefs and motivations the things that unify and define our fellowship. Our first affirmation is the centrality of the word of God. I've listed this in your sermon notes. It says, The Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament, is the word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. We believe what the word, God, the word of God says about itself in Hebrews and First Peter, which are also recorded in your notes. The word of God is living, active, and enduring. This word is what should govern and guide our lives. As followers of Jesus Christ, the Bible is our truth. The Bible is the truth. The covenant affirmation goes on to say this. It's essential to the life of the church that it be a company of people who desire their lives to be shaped by the powerful and living word of God. The alternative is clear. Not to be shaped by the word is to be shaped by the world. Let me say that last part again. Not to be shaped by the word is to be shaped by the world. If we believe scripture is the truth, then we need to see it as a canvas on which God painted his image for our viewing pleasure. If we want to be shaped by the word and not the world, then we need to surrender the paintbrush. We need to give it back to the master artist. We need to gaze long and deep into God's canvas, the Bible. We need to submit our feelings and our experiences to his story, to his revelation. This is the true story he painted. Long ago, God created the world and everything in it. And instead of letting it just spin on unattended, God chose to live among his creation, revealing himself to humans, entering into covenant relationships with them that went on into every generation. Then one day in his perfect timing, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bring good news to the brokenhearted and ultimately to sacrifice his life for the sins of the world. And that was the ultimate act of love. 
God is not the absent one painted by the spiritual darkness Mother Teresa experienced. God revealed himself in scripture as Yahweh, the great I am, the God whose very name proclaims that he is with and for his people. He is Emmanuel, God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Holy Spirit who lives in every believer. Mother Teresa found joy and healing when her confessor suggested this. He said maybe she should consider that her darkness was a mysterious link to Jesus in his suffering and death on the cross. Listen to her response to that. She said, I am very happy for the good grace God has given me. One big grace. I have surrendered completely. I am at his disposal. God is not the implausible fiction that my friend Steve sees. He is the God who has the power to raise the dead to life. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he fished again with his disciples. He broke bread with them, and he taught them, all before he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. God is not the punisher Linda envisioned when her husband and her mother died. God is not the fire-breathing judge that Jeff's circumstances painted. God is not the neglectful parent who took his eyes off from me, off of me and allowed me to drown in my pain. Instead, everywhere we look in this book, we see a God who stays close to his people. We see him promise over and over to never leave us or forsake us. If I believe that the Bible is the truth for me today, a living word, my light in this dark little kingdom, then I also must see God in the promises of Psalm 121. They tell me that God watches over me, that he never falls asleep when he is on watch, and he is always on watch. God is not a neglectful parent. He is El Roi Ra'ah, the God who sees me. This is a picture of me as a baby with my father Kim leaning over me. But this is also a true depiction of God's character. Not one who overlooks me, but one who watches over me always. Now it's your turn. How do you see God? Have painful events or circumstances distorted your image of God? Are the words staleness? or darkness, silence, distance, or numbness, a good descriptor of your relationship with God. Then I have some good news for you today, and this is it. This is the living word of God. Through thousands of true stories, it proclaims how wide and high and long and deep is the love of God. And the Bible tells us that God's love is for us, it is steadfast, and it never ceases. If that message does not connect to your soul today, then maybe it's time to seek healing in your relationship with God. Maybe you need to look deep into your story for the places or place where things kind of went awry and see how your image of God got stained or distorted. 
Maybe it's time to surrender the paintbrush like I had to do. To surrender the paintbrush back to the master artist and allow him to restore his greatest work, the image of his love for you. That's a lot to take in. That's a big ask. So I want to give you time and space to consider your life, to consider your relationship with God, and to give us that time and space, I've asked Sarah Lowe to come and sign a song of response for us. This song is by Carrie Job, and it is called, You Are For Me. I also would like to ask the ushers to come forward to collect today's tithes and offerings. So faithful, so constant, so loving and so true, so powerful in all you do. You fill me, you see me, you know my every move, 
going to continue our worship through corporate confession. Sometimes we get in our own way for healing, and so we can cleanse ourselves by confessing to the Lord. After we do our confession together, uh, we are going to sing another song, but we are going to welcome any of you who would like healing. The Bible is very clear about this. It says, are any of you sick? Call on the elders and ask them to pray for you. We will have three stations of people up here with oil to anoint you and to pray for your healing. We will pray for any type of healing, whether it be physical, in a relationship, and most especially in your relationship with God. So when you see the the stations of people, please come up and come forward. Would you read these words of confession with me? Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open us to a future in which we can be changed, and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. 